Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to the Sandbox Story, in which I'm going to combine storytelling with interviews. I'm excited to have you along on this exploration. If I ask you, who was your most impactful patient ever? Can you think of a name right away? When delivering eye care services, we have the distinct pleasure to truly connect with so many patients and their stories. I have positive memories of so many wonderful people I saw over 25 years of patient care. But there was one person that stood out, Mr. Erwin Deutsch. Today on Sandbox Stories, I'm thrilled to be telling his compelling stories, along with some of his family members who will join me in just a little while. Mr. Deutsch was a tremendous man. He visited our clinic regularly for eye health management services, often being on site three or four times a year. Everyone loved him. I was so enthralled with his stories that the staff got to booking extra time on my schedule to allow for our long discussions in the exam room. Before his passing, he gave me his personally written memoirs, a gift that I cherish, along with the strict rules of how to tell his stories properly based upon the age of the audience. All of what I share with you today is directly from the experiences and knowledge of Mr. Deutsch. His Jewish family was from Breslau, one of the largest cities in Germany before World War II, but which today is part of Poland. His family record in Breslau dated back to 1771. He was born in 1916, one of four children, all born while Germany was still a monarchy. The family ran a wholesale grain and seed business and were reasonably positioned in the middle class. Germany became a republic after World War I and ultimately had five major political parties vying for leadership, one being the Nazis. Leading up to the 1932 presidential election in Germany, his father, who was a friend of one of the moderate candidates, held an organizational meeting that happened in their home. Mr. Deutsch, a 16-year-old, was allowed to observe from the corner of the room as the men collaborated on the campaign that they hoped would disallow Adolf Hitler from assuming power. Unfortunately, the election was won by a man who immediately appointed Hitler to the role of chancellor in 1933. In his memoir, Mr. Deutsch reflected back on that time and pointed out that one of the men in the room in 1932 who was not helpful to the moderate candidate later wrote to Mr. Deutsch's father in 1947 saying, quote, I wished I would have listened to you in 1932 because you can go to your grave knowing that you tried to prevent the Holocaust. I have to go to my grave knowing if I would have had your insight, I could have saved the death of six million Jews and uncounted millions of innocent people. The fatalities of a civil war would have been a fraction of the people who died at the hands of the Nazis. Hitler's rise to power in the 1930s leveraged an incredible propaganda machine. He immediately passed the Enabling Act, which allowed the government to surveil and target people, and he quickly ordered a boycott of all Jewish stores. 
1936, the Nuremberg Laws were passed, taking citizenship away from the Jews. Mr. Deutsch was actively participating in moving young people away from Germany over the border to Czechoslovakia, particularly because he was such a good snow skier. He said that he was lucky because he didn't look Jewish and he was blonde. He avoided much trouble along the way, but he did get into the occasional dust-up, and for that he used judo for protection. Mr. Deutsch became engaged to his girlfriend at a time when he was dealing with increasing scrutiny and gimmicks by the government to take away business and money from any Jewish person. He avoided some attention by tearing up the registration card that was expected to be on file for every Jew. He and his wife were married in 1938, just a month before Kristallnacht, in which Nazis burned synagogues and broke windows at the businesses and homes of Jewish people. With that moment of unrest upon them, they moved in with his parents. But quickly, the Nazis came for his father, his brother-in-law, his two uncles, like so many others. With hope of finding his father and uncle, he essentially volunteered himself to be put on the train to the Nazi concentration camp at Buchenwald. He rode on the train, and then upon his arrival, he had his head shaved, and he was placed alongside the other 12,000 men who were worked to death, literally. He tried vigilantly to find his father, who was in another barrack, by going out in the dark of night to use the big pit in the ground that was to be a latrine. He would whisper to others with the hope of not getting caught, for if he were, he would have been shot and his body pushed into the pit with so many others. Eventually, he found his father, and sometimes he found some sympathetic Nazi officers, but they were rare. He witnessed the most unimaginably inhumane treatment, with essentially no food or showers, and there were beatings and killings on top of all of that. In a stroke of odd fortune from misfortune, when his father had a heart attack, they were provided a release. All of this was associated with signing papers to agree to leave the country within a month by the last day of 1938. They got out of Buchenwald. From all of these incredible circumstances, living barely at the edge of life after a month in Buchenwald, he said about his time in the concentration camp, quote, I made up my mind. I will never forget, but I will not let it haunt me. Now a new life is beginning. He and his wife left Germany via a ship to Bolivia with a stop at Ellis Island. They couldn't get into the U.S. as there was a limit on Germans being accepted. And then it was only those that could demonstrate they had family members in the U.S. that could financially support them. Others in his family were not so fortunate. His sister and her husband and family never got out of Germany and were never heard from again. Mr. Deutsch lived in Bolivia for many years before moving to the United States to be near his sister. From Louisiana to Wyoming to Wisconsin, Mr. Deutsch became ingrained in American life. All the while, this patient, thoughtful, hardworking, family-focused man positively influenced everyone that he met. Later in his life, he took the collection of over 1,000 laws passed by the Nazis against Jews between 1933 and 1945, and he translated many of them to English. And he developed a manner of telling his stories 
including age-appropriate versions to school children. He was an impactful man, but instead of hearing more about it from me, let's now hear about it from his daughter and his granddaughter. Hello, and welcome to The Sandbox Story, which is an interview with the family of my favorite, most impactful patient of all time, Mr. Erwin Deutsch. I'm honored to have his daughter, Hi. Renata Bennett, and his granddaughter, Tamara Braun, here to represent his memories. Welcome, both of you, to Sandbox Stories. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's a great thrill. Good to be it's a great thrill. <laughs> Renata, let's talk about your father. As a young man, he found the love of his life in your mother. How did they meet? They met after school. My mother was in a different, younger class, and she, they were in, a, I guess, a, a gym class, and she broke her arm, and she was carrying her books in one arm, and he saw her, and he thought she was so cute. She had these long pigtails, and um, he offered to carry her books back home and bring her to her home. And that's how they met. And they really had a long love story. What a great story. How many children did they ultimately have? How many siblings did you end up with? Two. One passed away when I was only two months old. And that was in Bolivia when they lived there. I was born there. And my sister was, her name was Marianne. She was four and passed away from what they think might have been rheumatic fever or malaria. They really didn't know. And penicillin wasn't available then. And she, she passed away. I never knew her. Just as a little child. Not even because I was an infant. Yeah, good point. Yeah. So what was the quality of your father that made your mother fall for him, his strong athletic abilities or what? Definitely that, but mostly he is such a kind, gentle, loving human being. Um, he was tough, you know, he, he was not, not a... Um, you know, bravo kind of guy. He was, he was all man, but he's a sweet man. You know, he, he was a good guy. He's just a good, good guy. Tamara, let's talk. Everyone. Let's talk about him as your grand. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about him as your grandfather. Go ahead. What, what did you call him? And in your eyes, what did he represent to you in your life? No, I called him Opa, which is grandfather in German. Everybody actually, I mean, you didn't obviously, but most people called him Opa. Um, anyone who was, I don't know, like 40 or younger called him Opa, it seemed like. Everyone seemed to meet him as Opa. All our friends um, called him Opa. Yeah, but he was, he was, um, I was just to, to add on to what my mom was saying, you know, like he was, he was just, he had the biggest heart of anyone I've ever known. His heart was so huge. So, and he just, he loved people. He loved getting to know people, loved children. Um, and I think that like men fell in love with him. Women fell in love with him. Everybody who met him fell in love with him because he was just such a special, kind, warm, loving 
human. And he was also, he was also macho too, you know, like he was, when my mom was saying it was all man, I think that's, you know, what she meant in terms of like, he was strong, he was tough, but he was, he had the sweetest, most gentle, warm heart. I mean, you couldn't ask for anything Definitely. more. And in my eyes, he was he he was my hero. He was um, definitely my favorite man in this life. And, and I wasn't the only person who liked to spend time with him. Your friends did too, is that right? Oh, they adopted him. Everyone mm-hmm. adopted him. They called him Oka. Yeah. They they formed separate friendships with them. You know. People my age would take him out for lunch, invite him for dinner. I mean, he was always, he was, I mean, my friends were always over. My friends always wanted to be with him. I mean, you know, as teenagers, you usually don't want to hang out with your parents and or your grandparents, but we did <laughs> because they were really, they were cool and they, we liked them. We enjoyed them. You know, my, my Opa was very, like I said before, he was just so warm and engaging and loving and, and all inviting. my girlfriends wanted you know, What's he, that? Yeah, the ability to invite someone to to talk about themselves and to to speak with them. I mean he he never really started a big discussion about anything, but if you asked him a question, you know, as you probably found yourself, Scott, he you know, he had a lot to say about the question if he knew what we were talking about. But I used to, as a teenager myself, I'd have friends come over. They always met my parents. And we'd all end up sitting around our dining room table, and they were talking to my parents. They wanted to know their story, and they just loved him. Did you get a sense that in his experience as a Jew who was in a Nazi concentration camp that he was a rock of a man to endure it before he got there as a young man, or did his survival of it turn him into a rock? Both, both. Um, he was he was tough, and he was aware of what was going on in Germany at the time, and he got into some street scuffles. Um, but when he got into Buchenwald, he said that within 10 minutes, he knew he better control his temper because he you pushed him too far, he could have a temper. It was rare, but he could have one. He said he knew in 10 minutes if, if he couldn't control his anger and his upset over what he was seeing, he would be dead. And so that made a big impression on him. Tamara, as a young woman growing up as this granddaughter that he treasured, do you remember him talking at all about any of those experiences in Germany with you, or did he sort of leave that behind? No, see, Opa was really wonderful in that, you know, he didn't leave. <laughs> Hi, no, I'm Erwin, I'm Opa, let me tell you, I was in a concentration right. camp. He never he didn't, he didn't leave with it. But if you ever wanted to know anything, he was an open book. He, um, he shared, he, so as a child, I don't recall him just talking about it, Um, but it was, you know, I was a child of the 70s and people weren't talking about it as much then as they were later on. Um, And when I was more of a teenager um, and in my early 20s, he spoke, he spoke a lot about it, but he also started speaking um, to schools and, you know, universities, church groups, um, 
community. That happened, so it was, that happened later in his life. Um, because when, right, he, when they first came to this country, people didn't want to hear about it. And they didn't talk about it because people really just didn't want to acknowledge it, I think, to some level and didn't know how to how to deal with it. So he didn't start talking about it until, as you said, Tamara, when you were a teenager, a young adult, he, he began to speak to school children when people found out his background and say, oh, you, you know, you have something to offer children. And, and it started while he was in Wyoming, really. So. Yeah, you know, because people would, would meet him and they, they would find that information out about him. And mm -hmm. most people had never met anybody who had had such a, an experience, mm -hmm. let alone someone who was willing to speak about it. And so when they found out he, he was, people would ask him if they would share the stories. And he was, and I think because he was just so, so honest about it and, um, and, and caring with his with his presentation of it, you know, he, he I think, he, and and because of the kind of person he was, he, it, it, people felt like they could engage with him on it, and he would be okay to share. And also, I think because of his accent, people would say, "Oh, where are you from?" And and then it would just open up a whole story. So, <laughs> can you imitate his accent? No, the only thing that Michael and I, my husband and I, we say it all the time. He used to have trouble with THs, you know. So he would say, I am thinking. But mostly when he wasn't thinking, he would say, I'm thinking. <laughs> he was thinking. So he made fun of himself about it, you know. It was this really pure German... Um, dialect of the American language when I interacted with him and with the last name Deutsch. Right. Um, it was easy to stereotype him as somebody who was um, just simply somebody who had come from Germany. But these stories are really important because he did learn through his life to meet people at their willingness. And, and I was like a can opener. You know, I just, I would just put another hole in the top of the can and, and ask to pour a little bit more of the juice out. And he was a willing participant. The way you said, Tamara, he would start to use that storytelling he got in, in school from telling schools, their stories and th his stories that he would start to open up about it. Um, let's shift back to him just as the grandfather was, he was very athletic. He was a skier. Did you go on any trips with him that were really compelling, you know, that, uh, that you remember fondly? All the time. I always looked forward to um, our winter breaks because we would, as a family drive to Aspen, Colorado <laughs> before it was super fancy. And, um, <laughs> and we would, we would, we would ski. So we would, often um, drive to Denver, uh, Oma and Opa would fly into Denver, right? And we'd pick them up and, mm -hmm. um, and then we would drive on to Aspen. That was before they lived uh, where we lived in, in Chicago or Evanston actually. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, those were some of the best memories that I have, you know, when being a young child when I, I didn't live with them or live, when they didn't live in the same city. Um, because I just loved them so much and skiing was so much fun and Opal was an excellent skier. And as I said, he was my favorite man. So, <laughs> I mean, I just always wanted to be with him. We had and, a lot of uh, laughs sometimes. 
over skiing. <laughs> but what's interesting oh is you, you juxtapose those family things and you were such a tight family with him using those skiing skills as a young man to help young people out of Germany over the mountains. I mean, that was a real thing he did, wasn't it? Yes, couples, because at the time, Aryans could not date or marry Jews. So a lot of these couples did not want to break up. They knew they had to leave the country. And a lot of them were his friends. And so he would ski them over the border because he knew that border really, really well. And, um, and when she says about 20 yeah, but when she says skied him them over the border, the Czechoslovakian um, guide them. He put the woman on his back, right? Because the terrain was so rough, the the, the slopes were so dangerous mm -hmm. that he would put the woman on his back and ski her on his back, and often with a suitcase in each hand. And and the and the the man of the couple would you know just ski and follow because it was very dangerous. Renata, some of your dad's family didn't make it. His sister and um, her His husband. And husband, yeah. Yeah. What was was there any of that that was discussed over time? Um, what oh, did you feel about your family? It. I knew it all my I knew it all my life that Gerda didn't get out. She she married a very very wealthy man into a very aristocratic family. They were philanthropists. They were, they were really wealthy. Um, and I think her husband, Heinz, felt he was so German. I don't think he really wanted to leave Germany. And I think he thought with his connections, um, he would manage to somehow avoid getting thrown out or sent to a concentration camp. And when everybody else got up, they were still trying to get out, and they um, they just didn't make it. And my parents and my grandparents spent those eight years in Bolivia when they lived there trying to locate them. But really, once once the U.S. entered the war, there was no more communication. You know, letters stopped. Uh, the Red Cross, you couldn't get any information there. Um, and my grandfather continued the rest of his life trying to find what happened to them. So it was- As did Opa. As did my as father. Did, as did my grandfather. Right. A painful loss to the family. Many years later, they yeah. went back to Breslau and, and found letters and correspondence that your, your father um, uh, translated. Um, was, was there any interesting story around that? Well, the story of the letters didn't happen because he went back okay. to Breslau. He went with my cousin, who found some letters in her grandmother, in her mother's basement, her, my father's sister, Margot. And three little letters, and she said, what, what are these, Mom? And she said, oh, they're just some letters that we wrote each other. And she said, can you summarize these? And so she summarized them, but like with three sentences. And my sister said, my cousin said, this, this can't be right. So she wrote to my uncle, my father's brother, and he almost did the same thing. He summarized these three letters. 
And she knew that just wasn't it. And so she went to my father and said, are there more family letters? And my father said, are you kidding? There are many because in those days we all used carbon copies because it took so long for letters to get anywhere. We would not remember what we had written or what they had written. So everyone made letters of the, re of the letter, copies of the letters they wrote. So he compiled them all, all, and there were 500 letters that went back and forth between all those siblings. It was amazing. And those, and the, what he found in Breslau when he went back with my cousin Susie, um, a lot of information about the communication between Gerda and Heinz and the Nazis and how they took his property and I mean, the man's family owned 15 estates that were just, you can't even picture it, you know, it's Downton Abbey plus, um, and all that didn't help them, but the letters came from the family. And my father was able to see the laws that were written, but no one had ever published all these laws. So he was hoping to be able to publish them because he researched it here at the university. There was no mention of the laws, the Nazi laws that uh, were in effect. And there was some translation of those uh, that he did as well, yes? Yes, yes, but he never got them published. And that was before people could publish on their own, really. So that could probably still be done. Or by now, maybe somebody has done that. I don't know. At one time, I took my family to Washington, D.C., to the Holocaust Museum, and he had some status with them. He provided me his passes because he said, I'm not going this year. I don't remember exactly what they were. Do you, do you, do you recall what his relationship there was with that uh, with the museum? There, were, there was a letter from the Kaiser that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this wrong. Um, that pardoned Jews from way before, from the 1600s, etc. And it, it, we have a copy of it. Um, and he made a copy and sent that to Yad Vashem as well. So they they knew about that proclamation. I should look it up because I. It's interesting. Don't remember the exact name, but well, Tamara, when I examined your Opa's eyes, it was never a time that he didn't express his pride in you. Uh, you're an accomplished actor uh, in television, and I guess you've learned a lot from him that has become part of you. What would you say has been something you've applied to your abilities in your successful career? Hmm. Well. You know, my, my grandfather was a very honest person. Um, and, I, you know, it's so funny. People are always always say, you know, actors, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you, you can lie, you know, you're an actor. And I'm like, I'm a terrible liar. And act, to me, acting is about telling the truth. You know, it's about being honest. It's about being as, as true to what is going on as one can be. Um, so, I mean, I guess in terms of my 
my career and my craft, I take that. But I feel like I feel like Opa and I had a really a really special, very very special bond. Um, and his his heart and his love and I, I don't know, I'm a little teary right now. <laughs> but um, just who he was as a person, I feel like I was so blessed to have in my life that. Um, I don't know. Like, I just feel like I carry him with me in, in pretty much everything I do at some level. So um, I can't say exactly in terms of my career, you know, but I think an integrity um, and an honesty and, um, and a strong work ethic. You know, he had a very, very strong work ethic. Now, that, that honesty and integrity just comes through so much. I'm so thrilled that you said that. Renata, did your father allow his time in Buchenwald to define him? No. Only to the extent that he said, he drew a line in his mind. He said, that was then. It was horrible beyond words, but I will not let a day go by where I had a bad dream that was then, this is now. Because if I let myself dwell on what I saw, what I heard, what I experienced. I'll go, I'll go insane. And so he just put it behind him. And the only way that it didn't became part of him was, I think, his, his strength, his resolve, his self-discipline, his um, humanity. I mean, you know, he... Um, in that way, you know, it certainly had an impact on his life. But Tamara, do you have anything to add there? And didn't, yeah, didn't he say, "I, I, um, I, I'm, I, I'll always remember, but I won't let it hurt right. me." Exactly. Exactly. Those words. Um, and I think that you know he had a really he he knew as you were saying that if he didn't control his own mind with it right. and put it in a place where he wouldn't forget, but it wouldn't be haunted by it, that he would like. And he had incredible willpower, and I I think he that was always a part of him. You know, he he was a smoker, and one day when some doctor finally said to him, "You really shouldn't smoke," he said, "Okay." threw it away, and that was it. And the man was a heavy smoker. I mean, when he made a decision, that was it. And you could count That's on true. him. You know, you yeah. could count oh. on him. And, right, he would say, it's not willpower, it's won't power. That's right. <laughs> That's great. You don't need willpower, won't power. <laughs> to be clear, I want to tell his story along with you because not – that he was somebody who experienced a concentration camp and made it through. But because of that impact he has had on others, myself and the many of your family and friends that he uh, met over the course of his life. So my last question for you is, what should our younger generations here in America think about a man who had that won't power to you know, put the bad things to the side and go forward? Because I think that would be what he would want everyone to know about his story. Can each of you give me a last point about that? What what would the message from him be now today to younger people? Whoa, you know, young, 
what America is going through right now is a little hard to to answer that question. I think I think he would be very upset at what's happened in America right now. I know when he was talking to school children, they would write him letters. You know, there was one young girl, I think she was in middle school and young black girl and she wrote him this letter and she was so afraid that what would happen if slavery came back. And he he was just so kind to her and he said he really did not think that would happen and that she needs to just go forward in her life and know that, you know, she can she can do more than she thinks she can do and not to let that stay in her mind. But you know, it was I still have some of those letters somewhere. Tamara? I think I think that yeah, I agree with mom. I think that, you know, he would be as as so many of us are really upset at at, at the way things are presently and have been in the past few years with the rise of white supremacy and um and the some strangely acceptance of it um but i do i mean in terms of what i think he would want for young people and what he would share is that i mean is to to be an honorable person to do what the best you can be because I think that when you are good to people and, and you live by a certain set of values and you have integrity and you share that with others, um, that it spreads. I think he would, because he stood up for what he believed in and he was brave in, in who he was and his experiences. And he, he never, <laughs> He never wanted anyone, you know, he, he, he believed in equality and he believed in justice. And there's, and we see, you know, it, it, we're humans. And since, since the dawn of, of humans, I mean, there have been, there have been good and bad forces. There has been right and wrong. There has been fair and unfair. And I think it will always continue. But I think that he, he would just, he would say that you you have to you have to stand by what you believe in and you have to be a person of integrity and care about others. I think that is a, a great way to close. Renata and Tamara, thank you for these tremendous stories. I'm so yeah. proud of your work to keep his legacy alive and to help me tell his stories. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for caring about him so much and, and wanting to share about him. Yeah. <laughs> we really loved him. It's so my much. pleasure. My many thanks to Renata Bennett and Tamara Braun. So there you have it. The story of my favorite patient, my most impactful patient, Mr. Erwin Deutsch. I'm so glad I knew the man and understood what a deep love of life looks like and that I was able to reach back in time with him to explore the unexplorable. To the audience, thanks for listening to these stories. I'm sure you have your own version of the most impactful patient you've ever encountered, so please share it with me. And to my old friend, Mr. Deutsch, thank you for letting me tell your stories. Until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.